0: Hey folks, Norm here. Great piece of relaunch pre-launch content for you this week. I sit down and do a director's cut special with author Ramsey Shahade on his fan favorite story Jimmy's Roadside Cafe. I think you're going to enjoy it. You are probably familiar with the structure of these specials that we do. They come in two parts. The first one we present the original story uncut for you to enjoy and in the second part Ramsey and I talk about the story and whatever strikes our fancy as it plays in the background. Just a quick reminder if you haven't yet, throw your email our way on our website, drabblecast.org. If you get a chance, do it right now. In the section, join our mailing list. We're wrapping up our first ever Drabblecast newsletter right now, and you should be getting it this weekend. Definitely want to keep you all in the loop about cool stuff coming up. Our Kickstarter, for example, our official relaunch. Yeah, don't miss out. Drabblecast.org. Go on and get in there. Alrighty, folks, let's get going. Jimmy set up a roadside cafe in the median of I-95, just north of the Falston exit, in the grassy depression between the guardrails. His first cafe, nothing more than a plywood shanty, fell to the first thunderstorm that blew through. The second was better. He dug a sort of foundation and built the walls out of a heavy plywood he'd harvested from an overturned Home Depot truck, reinforced the corners with steel joints, laid down a sheet of tin for the roof. He used a Hummer's windshield for the front window, a thick yellow shower curtain for the door. He then nailed an open, closed sign beside the doorway, flipped it to open, settled down in his lawn chair, and waited. Two days later, he got his first customer. She was half gone already, her face a mass of pinkish sores, one of her eyes pure red and swollen nearly out of its socket. She came out of the north, staggering drunkenly between the ranks of stopped cars, moving with the hitched staccato gait of creeping atrophy. Hello, he cried, and jumped up, waving frantically, then rushed onto the road and wended his way through the dead cars toward the woman. He stopped in front of her, panting, smiling broadly, and held out a hand. Welcome to Jimmy's Roadside Cafe. I'm Jimmy. The woman stopped, swayed, put a hand on the side of a Corolla to steady herself. She was wearing a man's trench coat over sweats, sneakers at least two sizes too big for her, a pink floral top. She studied him for a moment, then said, I need help. "'Of course,' said Jimmy, smiling broadly. "'Come on inside.' It was a grey day, threatening rain. He took her by the arm and led her down into the median and through the cafe's canted doorway to its only booth, the back seats of a Buick and a Lincoln flanking a small table. He bustled away and came back with a Scooby-Doo glass half-filled with brandy and a doughnut that clattered like cutlery when he dropped it on the table. "'How special,' said Jimmy." She looked at the donut, but made no move toward it. "Ah, Don't worry, you'll be able to keep it down, said Jimmy. You just need to have the brandy in you first. He raised the glass to her lips. Trust me. She made a face, but drank, tentatively at first, then in long drafts. Jimmy sat down across from her and snapped the donut in two, handed one half to her, and started on the other. It tasted like sweetened cement, hard on the outside and chalky on the inside, but he chewed and swallowed, downing it like medicine, and eventually she followed suit. So, what's your name, asked Jimmy. Margaret. I'm very pleased to meet you, Margaret. I'm looking for my husband, she said. Jimmy frowned, didn't answer. Her words dropped into the silence like coins falling down a well. His name is Nabil. He's Lebanese. He's a lawyer. Jimmy held up a finger and went behind the bar. A long board laid atop two towers of stacked cinder blocks and pulled his drawing pad and pencils out of a cardboard box with the word basement scrawled on its side in red marker. All right, said Jimmy. What was his head shaped like? Thin and tapered? He drew a wedge. Or plump. An oval. Or a uh, square jawed like a trapezoid. Plump. But not that plump. Yeah, okay. He drew a narrower oval. And a uh, nose? Biggish. Wide nostrils. He drew it. Uh, like this? She shrugged. I guess. Okay, good. Eyes? And they worked their way through it, building the dead man's face, feature by feature, until they had a portrait. He sketched in a thicket of short black hair, curly and tussled, and a thick neck with a prominent Adam's apple, then spun it around. Like that? She nodded. That's him. Jimmy spun the portrait back and wrote... "'Have you seen this man along the bottom?' "'Then went outside and nailed it to the wall beside the curtain. "'He looked up and down I-95, "'so thick with dead cars that it seemed paved with them. "'He went back inside. "'Margaret was studying herself in the full-length mirror "'mounted horizontally behind the bar,' The face that stared back at her was ravaged, bewildered, numb. So, uh, hopefully we get some news, Jimmy said. Do you want some more brandy? She nodded, then coughed, a long, racking heave that spattered blood and mucus on the table between them. Jimmy leapt up and came around and put an arm around her shoulder and held her until the spasm passed. She was crying. It hurts, she said. I know. Hey, why don't you try this? He produced a lozenge. It helps a little. He rose and unfolded his bed, a portable cot with a thin foam mattress, then helped her onto it and drew a woolen blanket up to her neck. Try to sleep, he said. He knew she wouldn't, though. The disease ate sleep and left dementia and demon visions in its wake. He thought about giving her morphine, but there wasn't much to spare and she'd need it later. He waited until her breathing slowed, then went outside, drawing the curtain shut behind him, and eased himself into his lawn chair. He looked out at the empty world. His second customer appeared out of the north as well, pulling a large red wagon with two children inside, a boy and a girl, both laid neatly out and dressed formally as if for a wedding, the boy in a black suit and a little red bow tie, and the girl in a frilly blue dress with lacework at the sleeves. "'Hello there,' said Jimmy, scurrying up the bank to the road. This new visitor was large, bald, and broad-shouldered, and wore a charcoal giant's jersey and a pair of blue sweats, torn at the knees. He slowed but did not stop, and fixed Jimmy with a hard glare. "'I'm Jimmy,' said Jimmy. "'Welcome to my roadside café.' The man glanced over at the shack. "'Is this a joke?' ''No,'' said Jimmy, and frowned. ''Is what a joke?'' The man took in Jimmy's uniform, the carefully pressed chinos, the long white apron, the little tie, the name tag. ''Why aren't you dead?'' he said. Uh, ''Can I interest you in a donut?'' said Jimmy. Uh, ''On the house, of course.'' ''What are you, crazy?'' ''Are you out of your fucking mind?'' No, said Jimmy. A shadow of uncertainty flickered across his face. We have brandy, too. The man snorted and picked up his pace. He was leaving. Jimmy felt a thrill of panic. He said, You have lovely children. The man stopped dropped the wagon's handle, and in one fluid motion spun around and slammed his fist into the center of Jimmy's face. Jimmy heard his nose crack, and the world went dark. When he came back to it, he was on the street, and the man was straddling his chest, hitting him and hitting him. Every blow was seismic, the pain monstrous and then incomprehensible. A gentle thrill of peace passed through Jimmy's body. He felt sure that he would die soon. And then... There was a voice, low and rasped, barely audible. The man paused and looked over at the café. Margaret stood framed by the slanting doorway, stooped and leaning against the wall, wrapped tightly in Jimmy's blanket. He looked back. Is that your wife? Jimmy swallowed the blood in his mouth, licked the blood off his lips. No, he said. That's Margaret. "'Margaret,' said the man, and after a moment planted a hand on either side of Jimmy's body and pushed himself to his feet. He wiped the sweat out of his eyes, bent, and offered his hand. Jimmy took it. His left eye was already swollen shut, and he thought that one of his cheekbones might be broken. He swayed for a moment, waiting for the dizziness to pass. "'Can I offer you... some brandy?' he said, spitting out a tooth. "'On the house, of course.' The man's name was Patrick Kramer. He'd moved to New York with his wife a year before the plague and was back on his way to Florida now. New York was my wife's idea, he said. She wanted the kids to grow up in a city, museums and plays and culture and shit. But we never got around any of that, so it was just a really expensive place to live in a really small apartment. They were sitting outside the cafe, all of them. Margaret had begun screaming during the night, so Jimmy gave her a couple of doses of morphine, which had done wonders. Even though it was only temporary, he was glad to see her better, smiling, her face a lovely echo of what it had been before the plague. Jimmy had gone scavenging the day before and came back with two more lawn chairs and a bag of beef jerky, teriyaki-flavored. They were eating the jerky now, Jimmy tearing it into thin strips for Margaret to swallow, She couldn't chew very well anymore. Her teeth were coming loose, swimming uncertainly in the pink soup of her gums. "'I went to New York City once,' said Jimmy. "'I was seventeen. We were going to look for prostitutes, me and my friends.' "'Did you find any?' said Margaret, smiling. Jimmy nodded. "'Oh man, lots of them. Big ones and small ones. Fat ones and thin ones.' Margaret laughed. They sound like they're from Dr. Seuss. (laughs) Horton humps a whore, said Patrick. (laughs) I chickened out, though. I went to a diner and waited for my friends to get done. That's where I met my wife. I have to tell you, Jimmy, said Margaret, still smiling. That isn't the most romantic story I've ever heard. I met my wife that night I couldn't find any hookers said Patrick and chuckled quietly to himself. The wagon with his children in it was parked close by under a cloud of flies. For me, the biggest thing about New York was the crowds, Jimmy said. Lots of people don't like that, the crush, but I loved it. It's hard to be alone in New York. Patrick snorted. (laughs) Easy to be lonely, though. Oh, you could be lonely anywhere, Jimmy said. I'd rather be lonely in a crowd. He squinted off into the distance. Yeah, you know, I like the hot dogs, too. Is that a hawk? Margaret shaded her eyes and looked westward into the diffuse light of evening. An osprey, maybe. I don't think there are any ospreys in this part of Maryland. Mostly they live around the bay. It's a fucking bird, said Patrick without malice. My husband was really crazy about birds said Margaret, still squinting at the wheeling speck in the distance. We were going on a birding vacation next month to California. Hunting, Patrick said. No, just looking. Patrick stared at her. Seriously? You drive around looking at birds? No, my husband drives around looking at birds. I stay at the hotel and get massages. She glanced at Patrick, caught him rolling his eyes. So, what do you do for fun? Make money. That's all? He considered. Spending money's okay, too, I guess. But it's just the cigarette afterwards, you know? No, said Margaret. I don't. I like that cigarette. Well, they'll kill you, said Patrick, too quickly to stop himself. Jimmy frowned. He'd been enjoying the conversation, but he didn't much like the uncomfortable silence it had become. He said, You know, my favorite thing about California is the sunsets. Margaret closed her eyes, and Jimmy saw her eyelids flutter with a spasm of pain. That's what I wanted to do most of all, she said. Watch the sun setting over the Pacific. She paused. My husband was on a business trip. Down in Texas. Do you think the plague got down there, too? Jimmy got up and said, You know, let me get you some more brandy. He disappeared into the cafe. The sounds of bottles clinking together came faintly from the open doorway. Man doesn't talk about what he doesn't want to talk about, said Patrick after a moment. Margaret managed to grin and bundled herself tighter into her blankets and stared off into the west. The next morning dawned bright and crisp, alive with bird chatter. Leaves rustled gently against each other in a clean autumn breeze. Jimmy bent over Patrick and shook him gently, whispered, time to get up. Patrick opened his eyes, blinked. The air inside the cafe was close and warm, faintly redolent of decay he craned his head back and glared. Who says? Jimmy held up a shovel and smiled. Come on, he said, and went outside. Patrick groaned, then struggled, cursing out of his sleeping bag, and went to the window and looked out at his children, still in their wagon, drawn against the side of the cafe, and covered now with a burlap tarp. When he turned back, Margaret was staring at him with wide and bleary eyes, her head turned sideways against the cot. It seemed detached somehow, a separate thing laid down beside her body. Hundreds of them, she whispered. Thousands. Patrick blinked. What? They're made of eyes, just mouths and eyes, floating around like newspaper, everywhere. There's nothing they won't eat. She paused and drew a long, ragged breath. They're so hungry. Jesus, said Patrick, a shiver crawling up his spine. He inched sidelong to the doorway and out into the open air. Jimmy was waiting for him. Hey, uh, I think Margaret's lost it. Not yet, said Jimmy. He held out a shovel. We'd better get started while it's still cool out here. Started with what? Jimmy pointed across the northbound lanes to a small stand of trees. In there, I think. That's a good place. A good place for what? Jimmy cocked his head. To bury them. Patrick stiffened and his gaze turned to stone. They go in the ground when we get to Florida. You won't get to Florida. Florida's a long way away. Let me worry about that. But they want to finish dying. Patrick didn't answer. A muscle worked restlessly in his jaw. If you were a dead person, would you want to be in a wagon right now, rotting your way down to Florida? Jimmy shook his head. I sure wouldn't. I'd want to be in the ground, where I'm supposed to be. Patrick grabbed a handful of Jimmy's apron. Shut up, shut up or I swear to God I'll kill you. You're being irrational and you're scaring away my customers. You don't have any customers, you fucking lunatic. Well, of course I don't. There's a wagon full of dead children at my front door. Patrick let go and stepped back, his eyes wide, and started laughing. Hard, mirthless barks that erupted out of him like thick gouts of earth. He crossed his arms over his chest and held his sides and laughed. Tears spilled out the corners of his eyes. He bent over at the waist, went down on one knee, planted an arm on the ground for support, laughing. And then he lurched to his feet and grabbed a shovel and stepped onto the highway and swung at the windshield of the nearest car again and again. When the windshield shattered, he pounded the hood into a warren of dented canyons and struck off a rearview mirror with the thin of the shovel blade, then swung the flat against the driver's side window. The car's alarm sounded, a bleating horn that rose from a mild whoop to a stuttering scream. He tore open the hood and started on the engine. The alarm cut off. Jimmy watched the birds while the car died beside him. Many of them were drab and uninteresting, but there were a few blue jays and robins, snatches of color fluttering between the vehicles, picking at what remained of the desiccated bodies inside. Before the plague, he'd never thought much about birds, except when they crapped on his car, and those had been uncharitable thoughts. Finally, Patrick threw down his shovel and staggered back. The car was a crumpled, shattered nightmare image of itself, sitting dead and canted in the center of a halo of broken glass. He collapsed heavily on the tarmac, slumped forward, breathing hard, head sunk into the hollow of his shoulders. Jimmy picked up the shovel and held it out to him. It's getting late. It's the boy's birthday today, said Patrick quietly. Dead people don't have birthdays, only alive people. Patrick looked up. You're a fucking monster, you know that? But he said it without conviction or heat, and a moment later took the shovel. They steered the wagon between the rows of frozen traffic to the opposite verge. The trees in the cluster Jimmy had chosen were denuded and emaciated and managed to throw only a patchwork skein of shade on the earth beneath them. Three plywood headstones poked out of the ground, like numbered chits from an ancient cash register. They said, Audrey, Francis, Kevin. Oh, someone's already here, said Patrick. There's room, said Jimmy, and plunged his shovel into the earth, stepped on the blade to drive it down. Aren't you curious about who these people are? Nah, he levered out a clod of dirt. I know who they are. Patrick waited, but Jimmy had nothing more to say on the subject, so he bent to the work. Two hours later, they had a broad, short, deep grave. Patrick threw down his shovel and wiped the sweat out of his eyes and went to the wagon and drew off the tarp. The little girl stared blindly up at him with red, swollen eyes. He lifted her, then dropped to his knees and lowered her gently into the hole, laid her legs straight, crossed her arms over her chest, smoothed the hair away from her face. Then he did the same for the boy, as if he were putting them to bed. "'Do you want to say something?' said Jimmy after a short silence. "'Like what?' "'Like a prayer or something? I don't know.' "'I don't pray anymore,' said Patrick and began to cry quietly. "'I prayed,' said Jimmy. "'When I buried Francis, I said, "'Please, God, give her the pony she always wanted.' And when I buried Kevin, I said, Please God, let him play with boys his own age, because he didn't get to do that much when he was alive. And when I buried my wife, I said, I'll miss you forever. Which wasn't a prayer, I guess. He paused, considering. Well, maybe it was a prayer to her. They stood for a while. Patrick said, Go away, Jimmy. Okay. Just call me when you're ready. Jimmy put down the shovel and stepped out of the circle of trees and wandered for a while between the cars until he found a cache of magazines in the back of an old Nissan. He climbed onto the roof of a nearby van and lay down on his back and opened a reader's digest. He was just finishing an article about the many benefits of fiber when he heard the sounds of labor from the cops, the hiss of a shovel, the dry skitter of falling dirt. He put down the reader's digest and looked up at the sun, just cresting the apex of its arc, then down at the river of cars that stretched southbound down 95 into the day's bright and empty horizon. Margaret batted at the air. Her left eye had darkened into an angry shade of purple, nearly black. Her skin was white and marbled with capillaries that stood out against the pallor like a skeletal road map. Her hair was falling out in clumps, exposing patches of white scalp. Jimmy caught up her hands and held them. He said, nothing you're seeing is real. They're eating me, she spoke in a crackled, guttural whisper. They won't stop eating me. No, they're not. Come on, I have something to show you. He knelt and put one arm around under her back, the other in the joint of her knees, and lifted her. She was fragile as a bird and weighed nothing at all, a papier-mâché doll of a woman. The air outside had turned chill. The sun hung just over the tops of the trees, red and purplish, tinting the sky in fading orange strata. Jimmy climbed onto the highway and made for the van he'd sunned himself on earlier, moving quickly. Patrick was waiting on the roof. He handed her up, then scrambled after. "'You should leave her alone,' said Patrick, his lips pursed in a prim expression of disapproval that seemed wildly out of place on his broad, rough-hewn features. But still, he helped ease her into the low beach chair they'd brought up earlier. Jimmy knelt down and shook her gently. "'Time to wake up, Margaret.' Margaret let her head loll to the side. Her good eye, pink now, rolled toward him. "'You're on fire.' she said. "'I'm not on fire. Wake up now. There isn't much time.' But she shook her head and kept shaking it, a gesture that shaded from refusal to anger to despair. Jimmy put his hands on either side of her head, steadying it, and brought his face close to hers and waited until her darting eyes slowed and found his. "'Good,' said Jimmy." He swung around to sit beside her, draped an arm over her shoulder, and pointed at the cars below, a frozen river of metal and glass flowing endlessly southward. "'Now watch!' Patrick frowned and shook his head, said something, but Jimmy wasn't listening. He was staring westward at the setting sun. As he watched, its lip touched the top of the tree line and spread instantly across, limbing the rich, dusky greens in red and gold— He turned back to the road and said, Okay, here it comes. A wash of brilliance exploded up out of the highway, the slant of the sunlight reflecting up from thousands of sloped windshields, and suddenly the road below them was a sparkling, blinding sheen of narrow white light hemmed in by the trees on either side. A brilliant path laid suddenly down on the surface of the world, plunging southward into the heart of the far horizon. Margaret caught her breath and whispered, Where are we? We're in California," said Jimmy. Her hand found his, grasped it tightly. Her breathing eased, and her tensed, knotted body began to relax. Oh, Nabil, she said at last, it's beautiful. Of course it is, said Jimmy. They sat watching until the sun dropped below the trees and when Margaret closed her eyes, Jimmy tucked the blanket about her shoulders and kissed her gently on her forehead. Goodbye, Margaret, he said. They buried her the next day in the graveyard copse beside the drawing of her husband. Jimmy said a few words when they were done, and then, after a moment's silence, they crossed the highway and settled into their lawn chairs. You know, I'm thinking tomorrow we should go into town and pick up some Cheerios, said Jimmy. Cheerios don't go bad ever. You can't kill Cheerios. They're like the cockroach of breakfast cereals. I'm leaving tomorrow, said Patrick. Jimmy looked over. Really? Where are you going? Down to Florida. I got family down there. He shrugged. I'm immune to this fucking thing, and I'm not the only one with my genes. Jimmy nodded. It would be nice if you stayed, though. Nah, you should come with me, man. There's nothing here for you. There's my café. And there was Margaret. And there was you. That's over now, Patrick said. That is, sure. They lapsed into silence and watched the birds wheel and dance over the dead rows of cars. The next day, Jimmy found a big hiker's backpack and stuffed it with donuts and beef jerky and a two-liter Coke bottle filled with fresh creek water. Be careful, he said, handing the pack over. Stay near the highway. Sleep inside cars at night. Wild things are starting to come out now that we're gone. Patrick nodded. Thanks. Come back and visit if you can. (laughs) We're always open. Patrick grinned. It's been a pleasure, Jimmy. They shook hands and he turned away, moving down the shoulder southward. Jimmy watched him disappear into the early morning haze, then went back into the cafe and tidied up a bit. He took Margaret's sheets off the cot and burned them in a little pyre. He rubbed the window clean, swept the floor, polished the table, then went outside and settled into his lawn chair and waited. (laughs) Four days later, a stuttering, puttering sound came down off the highway. He jumped to his feet and ran up, peering north. A scooter was winding its way through the cars, dragging a small makeshift wagon behind it. An Indian woman sat hunched over the handlebars, navigating carefully. The man in the seat behind her lolled against her back. His skin was pocked and white, his eyes vermilion. They were very close before the woman saw him. She started and braked hard, and the sharp squeal of her tires pierced the morning stillness like a needle. A small boy with tousled hair and large round eyes popped his head up from the wagon and said, Are we there yet, Mommy? The woman clambered carefully out of her seat, then turned to catch the man behind her who was listing hard to the side. Jimmy rushed over and took his other arm, and together they eased him onto the street. Thank you. "'said the woman, warily. "'The boy clambered out of his wagon and hid behind her, peeking shyly up past her skirts. "'The sky was a soft shade of blue, "'the sunlight bright and crisp. "'A breeze blew through the cars, "'carrying with it the stench of decay, "'the bouquet of morning. "'Jimmy smiled. "'Welcome to Jimmy's Roadside Café,' he said. "'I'm Jimmy,'
1: I'm here with Ramsey Shahadi, author of the story that you just heard, Jimmy's Roadside Cafe, and several other stories on the Drabblecast, including Creature and uh, the story we commissioned for Lovecraft Month one year, The Mouth of God. Uh, Fans respond well to your stories, Ramsey. They're a huge favorite here, and uh, you're one of my personal favorite writers, too. How are you doing?
2: I'm good. Thank you for all that. Yeah, I'm fine, thanks. Yeah,
1: that's great. Uh, Jimmy's is a is a story about the post-apocalypse, obviously, and, and bringing post-apocalyptic characters that are unlikely to normally meet together into the story. and. Um, I guess before we get going with this, I wanted to just kind of read a paragraph that uh, one of our listeners on the forums summed us up as, I thought it was very poignant. Sandra O'Dell says, This is a tale of surviving a plague, the only way one man knows how, by starting over. After the world ended, Jimmy set up a roadside cafe in the median of I-95, just north of the Falston exit, in the grassy depression between the guardrails. Customers came, customers go, and death is a certainty, quiet and inescapable. Ramsey colors his world with everyday details, from the texture of a donut to the sound of a shovel biting into the dirt. His characters are three-dimensional, and the quiet desperation of their lives lends an aching beauty to the story. I'll admit, this story left me dangerously close to tears, not an easy feat. And uh, I would concur on that last line too. I think I did tear up a little bit the first time that I produced this and heard it back. It was, you got that knack to you, Ramsey.
2: Oh, thank you. It's very kind.
1: <laughs> so what are you uh, doing with yourself these days? What are you doing as far as projects and stuff?
2: Um, so I'm mostly just trying to write short stories. Haven't done much recently. Um, it's been uh, sort of consumed by the day job, but um, more along the same what I was doing before sci-fi fantasy type stuff
1: and you your day job you're a software guy right you write software yeah that's right are there any similarities you'd say between writing software and writing stories
2: uh, it's funny you ask that um i have labored for 20 years to find similarities between the two um and i don't think there are <laughs> um <laughs> so because it the, the one of the issues is like a, it's such a huge context switch going from you know writing code to writing prose mm-hmm. um so I guess if, it was, uh, if I was more of a hard sci-fi guy, I would be able to find more commonalities. And sometimes the software does lend itself plot-wise, you know, mm-hmm. through the stories. But as far as process goes or mindset, uh, it's just very different, you know. So I don't, well, for me at least, there really, there really isn't that much that's similar.
1: Creature and a lot of your stories have this kind of tension with how we deal with darkness, with grief, you know, um, with with loss and with going forward. There's kind of a hope aspect. And and I love that about about your writing. Um, So I could see that whole humanist kind of uh, emotional piece being absent to some degree in the the software coding world.
2: (laughs) No, that's very astute. I mean, um, when I reread this story for, you know, this interview, I was I sort of came to it. It's been a while. So it it was interesting because I sort of came to it as a third party, you know, just basically reading this in some ways for the first time, and that did strike me about it as well uh, when I thought about it 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 is very much about uh, how people respond um to adversity, like mm-hmm. adversity turned up to eleven essentially in this case, but you can go a couple of ways, and I think my favorite stories are the ones where people go Jimmy's way, right it's not it's rare, but it's nice to see. Uh, that people can react in the way he does to, to things going terribly wrong.
1: Yeah, absolutely. In fact, if there was any criticisms of the story, it was that people just can't wrap their heads around the, the notion that somebody could be like Jimmy, you know, mm-hmm. um, I just watched the Mr. Rogers movie, <laughs> which kind of reminded me and I watched it right after listening to this story. And it, it reminded me of the fact that we had to we had to pigeonhole and try and figure out how to understand this guy who seemed to be it's, it's like we classify it as weird if it's uh, something that's too good to be true, you know, and it's so alien and strange to us that um, that some people just can't buy into it you know they think that it's Mm -hmm. like it's suspension of disbelief is stressed at that point um And and who can blame them in this world that we live in? The last director's cut we did was a story about uh, powering the world with hate and the the poignancy of that, (laughs) because that's the world we live in, you know. And so it's this story is in direct conflict and the opposite side of that whole thing. Like it's powering the end of the world with love. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know, that's that appeals to me personally. It didn't stretch my my, uh, you know, disbelief level there.
2: Yeah, it's, it's like you're reading my mind, man, because I was thinking exactly the same thing. I watched that Richard, Mr. Rogers movie a couple months ago, or like a month ago, and I had exactly the same reaction. Well, I mean, it. yeah. I was crying through a lot of that movie. Me, <laughs> it's just, too. It's just like
1: a, Me too, because it's, isn't that the ideal thing that we should all strive for? And you look at that, and you're like, that's not possible. That guy's got to be gay or weird or he's got to be a pedophile or something. How do I classify this human being who lives his life out of love? You know, because we don't do that. That's not the perspective of Fox News and CBS and MSNBC or anybody out there. Mm -hmm. We don't think about uh, turning the other cheek and and how to cope with things. And so this story to me is that's the appeal to it, I think, is is that's the speculative fiction aspect of it. I mean, the world's going to end. That's not speculative, right? So (laughs) the speculative piece is that you can behave the way that Jimmy does possibly in spite of the fact that everything is gone and there's no hope maybe you know Mm -hmm. you can be a Mm -hmm. beacon this is uh this was Drabblecast 249 Jimmy's Roadside Cafe by Ramsey Shahadi Tell you, it's so easy to come up with post apocalyptic music. (laughs) (laughs) You just stick your finger on a keyboard and hold it there for a while.
0: (laughs) After the world ended, Jimmy set up a roadside cafe in the median of I 95, just north of the Falston exit, in the grassy depression between the guardrails.
2: I used to do a lot uh, up to Falston. And, uh, yeah, this, this is the inception of the story. There's some really interesting mediums on 95. They always sort of caught my attention huh. just because they're so wide. <laughs> you know, it feels like they can support entire ecosystems. Yeah. It's always, like, wonderful. Wondering what could happen in there so
1: now you're reading my mind man because I have <laughs> I've done that ride a lot from Baltimore to Georgia and uh, I look at those medians like, especially through Virginia and stuff and you see these mm. forests and stuff and you're like mm-hmm. it always crosses my mind briefly like what if I lived in a world where I could just camp like right there and that's where I lived
2: yeah yeah that's where it started it, and, and it sort of inverted as the story went on where sort of the the um, um, the meetings became a place of quote-unquote normalcy and everything around it got weird <laughs> you know but yeah that's where it started just the meetings um,
1: yeah everything around it got weird because it's traffic it's cars it's car accidents it's just fast uh, noise fuel smoke and then in the middle you've got these forests and it's your little tent and you're just peaceful and you got a cafe
2: hmm yeah exactly
1: oasis welcome to jimmy's roadside yep. cafe
0: two days later he got his first customer she was half gone already, her face a mass of pinkish sores, one of her eyes pure red and swollen nearly out of its socket. She came out of the north, staggering drunkenly between the ranks of... Stars.
1: Yeah, I mean, despite the, you know, touchy-feely stuff, you don't pull any punches when it comes to gore and the horror of it all, too, you know? You did that in Creature as well. Like, it's there's awful things going on, and you sporadically thrust those in there, and it really juxtaposes against the emotions, because then you're like, oh, sores just bleeding down her face, and like, you know, shit's not good.
2: Yeah. It's distressingly easy for me to come up with that stuff, honestly. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, it's and it's not like it's enjoyable to write, but it seems like um, I can come up with these sort of counterpoints to the main thrust of the story. Yeah. Yeah.
1: What do you think it is about the post-apocalypse that makes us so interested in stories about it? You know, it's all over the place.
2: Yeah, I've wondered that a lot. It seems like we are On the brink of various kinds of apocalypses all the time, you know, as environmental or, uh, you know, uh, totalitarianism or whatever. It seems like Mm -hmm. uh, bad things are about to go down all the time. So it's easy for my mind, at least, to drift to that, to wonder what happens afterwards. But I think in other ways, depending on where you live and who you are, we're already in the apocalypse, right? Right. It's like that thing that Gibson said, like, the future's already here. It's just not evenly distributed. I mean, in some ways, the apocalypses are here. Like, if you're living in Bangladesh, climate change is a thing already that you're dealing with every day, you know? So I think in some ways, it's like it can feel like we're already there. I mean, that's overstating it a bit, but that could be part of it as well.
1: That's a really good point. Do you, do you think that, like, since we're tying into the idea of, of Jimmy being a different type of road warrior, <laughs> you know, than <laughs> typical, I always thought the apocalypse was an interesting concept. I mean, actually, the apocalypse kind of sucks. I'm, I'm scared of that part of things, you know? <laughs> the post-apocalypse is the interesting part for me because you get to kind of theoretically be who you want, you know, recreate the world. Like, it's a empty slate, assuming there's not too many zombies and pieces of uh, nuclear fallout laying around, but... Uh, And that's why I think the Jimmy piece is cool, because that's his decision to be who he wants in the post-apocalypse, whereas most of us are cutting off human ears and stealing motorcycle gas from people in that. Yeah,
2: very good point. And I think this story for me was a little bit of wish fulfillment, because honestly, I can't stand watching The Walking Dead and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. It's just too too real. I mean, it's not that it's inconceivable. It's not that it's, um, I don't believe something like that could happen. It's just that I don't want to believe it, right? So if you take the apocalypse as a given what's the best you can make of, it, as you're saying right so yeah. it might be something like this and
0: nailed it to the wall beside the curtain he looked up and down i-95 so thick with dead cars that it seemed paved with them he went back inside
2: That was uh, when I read that image again. The thick, the the thickness of the dead cars. Mm-hmm. I didn't know if I thought about it at the time, but if you no, if you've ever sat in traffic, it looks like that. You crest the hill, and it's just this long wave of cars not moving.
1: Oh, it's just a great line. I mean, and, and it's anybody who's driven up 95 and hit around the D.C. area knows in Virginia knows that that paved dead car it looks like it's an apocalypse because nobody's moving you know <laughs> moving. it just needs <laughs> like an orange horizon like it's with some smoke <laughs> <laughs> but everybody's on their way to work
0: yep exactly <laughs> hey why don't you try this he produced a lozenge it helps a little he rose and unfolded his bed a portable cot with a thin foam mattress then helped her onto it and drew a woolen blanket up to her neck Try to sleep, he said. He knew she wouldn't, though. The disease ate sleep and left dementia and demon visions in its wake. He thought about giving her morphine, but there wasn't much to spare.
1: I like the disease here because it's kind of ambiguous. You lose your mind. Did you have any specific, like, uh, intentions behind the actual physical type of disease we had here?
2: I didn't. I didn't. A lot of the story just arrived, you know, Mm -hmm. and it was just, like, sentence by sentence. So, uh... The disease sort of served the plot. The short story is going to move, you yeah, know, it's, it's you've got to uh, establish the premise and go from there because the premise isn't actually the important part. I don't know, I guess it depends on the kind of story. I think in this story, why the world ended isn't important. It's the aftermath that's really the, the key here, I think. Jack.
1: You know what it kind of is? It's a setup for you to be able to make these three characters, which are very different types of people, be together in a room in a horrible situation.
2: Yes, exactly, yeah. All the things I was taught early on when I was writing is like, characters are the most important thing. And I always, it, that really rung true to me <laughs> because I was much more into the spectacle and the sentences and so forth. Yeah. And I sort of backed into a realization with stories like this, you know, that it is the characters. I mean, the fireworks around it are important to, to a certain extent, but what what people are left with are the characters, you know, I think. It's really interesting and fun to write interesting plot mechanics and so forth, and that's hard in its own way. But you, you know when you've arrived, That's one thing, that how programming is so different, or writing code is so different from writing fiction. Um, Writing code is, there's an answer, you know? There may be several answers, but there's an answer, and then you know when you've gotten there because the shit works, right? But uh, it's not true with fiction. I heard Sondheim once, you know, when Sondheim started writing music Mm -hmm. as well as lyrics, so there's a sort of mathematical aspect to music, he was saying. I don't know a lot about music, but I've heard several people say this, like you can solve for music. Like you can get to a point where you know you've hit it, right, because mm. of the, because of the mathematical aspect. He said you can't do that with lyrics, lyrics you have to navigate by feel. You never really know if you're there. Uh, I think that's true of writing characters as well, like effective characters and character interactions. ...on
0: chairs and a bag of beef jerky, teriyaki flavored. They were eating the jerky now, Jimmy tearing it into thin strips for Margaret to swallow. She couldn't chew very well anymore. Her teeth were coming loose, swimming uncertainly in the pink soup of her gums. Ugh,
1: yeah, see, there you are with your... <laughs> yeah, it's it's a hor- just... The world ending is not a fun, sweet place, you know? Who do you think Jimmy was before this plague? Like, if you had, any, if you had to guess, like what did he do? What kind of person was he?
2: In my mind, he's a pretty nondescript, uh, I don't know salaryman type person Mm -hmm. i guess you know i mean i think um it's one of those things where he would have just in the absence of a cop of an apocalypse he wouldn't have hurt anybody or been a bad person but he was sort of sailed through life and died you know um i think this made him who he is obviously uh and made him very different from who he was before
1: yeah the um is it peter is i guess the uh the guy that comes in with the daughters Remember, yeah, yeah. That's a great character that I love because that's the type of person I would have probably been in a apocalypse, or will be. Who, who knows? No. <laughs> and I think that Jimmy and the way he acts, he saves Peter from becoming um, a road warrior type person. He inflects this idea, this concept that you can be something different than a survivalist. You know?
2: That's a really cool insight. Yeah, I never thought about that, but you're right. Yeah, he's got the Midas touch in a way. Yeah. It's, I think what you said at, at, at the very beginning was very true um about how Jimmy feels otherworldly like an like an alien like almost literally like an alien um in the way like Jesus Christ did I'm sure just because uh, I mean, in some ways he's the least believable thing in the story i mean this mm-hmm. it's a, such what you said before uh, but you want to believe in him? you know I think I do anyway, I want to believe that there are Jimmys out there or that there will be. And then Mr. Rogers' analogy is just perfect for me because in the thing in that movie, when you're reading, when you he doesn't seem like a real person at all, mm-hmm. and it's off-putting in a way. Well, it's not. It could be off-putting, I guess, but it's it's it just feels like it can't be real, like it's a simulation. I was reading some reviews of the movie, and someone would point that out. It's like they didn't actually manage to bring him down to earth, right? They didn't explain him to us, and I don't think that's a real criticism because you. I don't think he's explainable mm-hmm. in our current context, right? He's just.
0: Do you think the plague got down there, too? Jimmy got up and said, you know, let me get you some more brandy. He disappeared into the cafe. The sounds of bottles clinking together came faintly from the open doorway. Man doesn't talk about what he doesn't want to talk about, said Patrick after a moment. Margaret managed to grin and bundled herself tighter into her blankets and stared off into the west.
2: I think the other thing that struck me on rereading it is how much Jimmy is a creature of the present. Like the, the past is just a minefield and the future is you know terrible or uncertain. So I think he makes a point of just living in the present and making every moment as bearable as he can. For himself and for other people.
1: It's so interesting that you said that um, that's what everybody would do in an apocalypse, right? They would just do it in different ways. Like, mm. thought that I'm the type of person that, to make life bearable, the first thing I need to do is get my hands on as much ammunition, shotguns. <laughs> I don't want to have to shoot anybody, but I know if, if I want to live, this is the way to make it happen. Yes,
2: right. And there was that moment where Patrick is, when we first met, where he's he feels like Patrick's about to kill him. And there was, like, a peace to it, right? He's like, if death is coming, so be it. So I think part of this is being at peace with death, right?
1: Would you want to live in a post-apocalypse or would you be like, man, I hope I got the plague. I don't want to deal.
2: I honestly don't know the answer to that question. Um, so I know what I hope I would be. I hope I would be something like a Jimmy, right? Where wouldn't, wouldn't, it wouldn't harden me. It wouldn't make me want to die. I would just try to live in the moments that are given to me. Um, but I don't know. It's really hard to know until you're there. Yeah.
0: Again and again, when the windshield shattered, he pounded the hood into a warren of dented canyons and struck off a rear-view mirror with the thin of the shovel blade, then swung the flat against the driver's side window. The car's alarm sounded, a bleating horn that rose from a mild whoop to a stuttering scream. He tore open the hood and started on the engine. The alarm cut off.
1: I don't know if birds were an important part for you in this, but I tried to incorporate birds a lot into the production because you bring it up a couple different times um, throughout the story that, uh, I don't know, there's something about hearing birds and nothing else that makes you think something's wrong, <laughs> you know? Yeah. The piece. I don't know. What do you think about birds in the story? Was, was it a conscious thing?
2: Not a conscious thing, but uh, I noticed it too. Um, and I think for me, the birds... I, I get what you're saying about when you just hear birds, something's wrong, but also it depends on how you look at it, maybe something is right, (laughs) you know, because uh, what you're not hearing is us, right? The the noise of us. Um, I think a lot of the, a lot of what the birds are in the story are the renewal piece, like the world's gonna go on without us. Hmm. Uh, It's not like everything's dead, we're just gone, you know? It's not like we've destroyed the world in sort of nuclear blast. It's like, what comes after? There's a line at the end uh, of of the story about, it is something like the stench of the decay and the bouquet of mourning. And I think that's, that's for me, I mean, that's redolent of the birds. Like the birds are what comes after. So, yeah.
1: The birds are what comes after. The trees hmm. in the
0: cluster Jimmy had chosen were denuded and emaciated and managed to throw only a patchwork skein of shade on the earth beneath them. Three plywood headstones poked out of the ground like numbered chits from an ancient cash register. They said, Audrey, Francis, Kevin.
2: I, I actually, I don't remember much about writing this story, but I remember this very well, because I think this is the moment when I realized that Jimmy had buried his, his family there. Mm. The character really clicked into place for me here. I mean, it's one of those characters, he just, again, he just arrived and I knew how he was, but I didn't really know why he was how he was until this moment. It was just one of these like amazing, you know, gift from God, revelatory moments where I got to see who he was that really informed the whole story. Do
0: you want to say something? said Jimmy after a short silence. Like what? Like a prayer or something? I don't know. I don't pray anymore, said Patrick and began to cry quietly.
2: That was a fun piece to write because it's one of the things where the characters were sort of introducing themselves to me as well. Like, getting beyond their just archetypical characteristics and just becoming people. Um, And it's what you were saying before too, I'm just realizing now. Like, as they spoke, they sort of mediated each other, or they sort of changed each other, right? Right. Um, As the different personalities sort of melted and affected one another. Yeah. yeah.
1: I'm always blown away by the fact that stories tell themselves to you, like you, Ramsey, and then you tell the story to us, but it's so unintentional. Uh, It's like you've got a little Ramsey in your head that is having a dialogue with these stories, and then they they arrive instead of they're decided.
2: Yeah, that's absolutely, that's always the way it is, at least for the good stories. You know, they just... I think Stephen King calls it the boys in the basement. Yeah, just something always working in the subconscious, and occasionally it'll send a flare. You know, it's all—I don't know why—why why the creative uh, spark has to be so coy, but it's always <laughs> like that. Like, uh, like in the story, like you get this character Jimmy, and he's a certain way, and you have no idea why, but it's intriguing. Mm-hmm. I think the example Stephen King gave uh, in his—I uh, think it was on writing that book. Like his imp- inspiration was he saw uh, a woman. Pushing a skunk around in a in a grocery basket, and he's like, "Why the hell is she doing that?" You know, and that led to a story. But I think that's it. It's like your subconscious is like, "I've got something for you, but you're gonna have to work for it." You know.
1: Yeah, and you're just like, "I will feed you, basement person, more. I'll give you more meat. Just tell me, give me your magic powers. Don't be so coy, person locked in my brain." Exactly. Patrick was exactly. waiting on the roof. But she shook her head and kept shaking it, a gesture that shaded
0: from refusal to anger to despair. Jimmy put Yeah, his yeah hand this is
1: approaching the moment when I started crying, uh, and a lot of people have responded the same way. Th- I put on Twitter, I was like, hey, of all the Drabblecast stories, what are moments that you remember, like if you were on a walk, or you were like at work or something, and then you stopped, and like, it was years ago, but you still remember where you were and what you were doing when you heard a moment in a story, and like two or three people responded the moment in this story whenever Jimmy and Margaret are watching the sun kind of set, and uh, re-listened to it, and I was like, yep, yeah, that's whenever I got really emotional, too. And I don't, I don't know what it is. I mean, yeah. Oh, here it is. A wash of brilliance
0: exploded up out of the highway, the slant of the sunlight reflecting up from thousands of sloped windshields, and suddenly the road below them was a sparkling, blinding sheen of narrow white light hemmed in by the trees on either side, a brilliant path laid suddenly down on the surface of the world, plunging southward into the heart of the far horizon margaret caught her breath and whispered where are we we're in california said jimmy her hand found his grasped it tightly her breathing eased and her tensed knotted body began to relax oh Nabil," she said at last it's beautiful of course it is said jimmy
2: i think part of the reason i don't know I don't really know why it was so effective either, but I think maybe one of the reasons is that um, the whole story has been about like this line of cars has been a you know mm-hmm. a, t- a totem of the apocalypse. Like this is a bad thing that happened, and a lot of what Jimmy does, he takes these things like he scavenges pieces from the apocalypse and makes them into good things, and that's what he did with this as well, right? He made a sunset out of the cars um, for her.
0: They lapsed into silence and watched the birds wheel and dance over the dead rows of cars. The next day, Jimmy found a big hiker's backpack and stuffed it with donuts and beef jerky and a two-liter Coke bottle filled with fresh creek water. Be careful. Mm,
1: creek water. (laughs)
0: Stay
1: near the highway,
0: sleep inside cars at night. Wild things are starting to come out now that we're gone. Patrick nodded thanks come back and visit
1: if you I can. remember trying to find a piece of music that um released like at that moment where that guitar uh electric guitar strums that chord i was like how do i mm. separate this section here to this end game section here where patrick is leaving and and i finally found that that little clip and i was like oh that's it right there that one strum is going to be like a parenthesis, essentially that lets us get to the next section
2: oh yeah you're right i hadn't thought about that that's super effective window clean swept the
0: floor polished the table then went outside and settled into his lawn chair and waited four days later a stuttering puttering sound came down off the highway he jumped to a effects. <laughs>
1: I mean, banjo is such a given, I think. It's just like <laughs> lawn chair probably sparked in my brain. like, this is a dude sitting in his lawn. It's uh, you know, it's like having a beer at the end of the world. got to have banjo.
0: her back. His skin was pocked and white, his eyes
1: vermilion. I've never heard eyes called vermilion before that color. That's that's and neat hard, and the yeah of her tire I love the word too the yeah it's just
2: right
0: cool it's a yeah. cool word a boy with tussled hair and large round eyes popped his head up from the wagon and said are we there yet mommy the woman clambered carefully out of her seat then turned to catch the man behind her who was listing hard to the side Jimmy rushed over and took his other arm and together they eased him onto the street thank you said the woman warily
1: Exactly. I used some Sigur Ross here in the background, a band that I love. It's just very ethereal and kind of had that vibe. Jimmy smiled. Oh yeah, yeah, I like them too. Welcome to Jimmy's roadside cafe. Do you recognize the tune? He said,
2: I didn't. Oh, till now, okay.
1: <laughs> Yeah, it was important to have the wind, the leaves, the birds as kind of the closeout thing mm-hmm. for me.
2: Yeah, that's right. I think the stories. I. I mean, I don't have any trouble envisioning apocalypses that comes pretty easily i think what's harder is finding uh these moments of grace you know mm-hmm. and making them believable so i don't know i, c- I can't think of any specific stories but the, the stories where i think things have fallen down is when i let the apocalypse take over i mean it might be you know what i mean I'm, I, where I let the apocalypse drive the thing rather than the characters um mm-hmm. and, I let it, and i let it come to its inevitable conclusion um, i think those kinds of stories are I don't know maybe realistic but they're pointless <laughs> you know I mean I, I mean why why do that you know uh, I think you just finding moments of grace in you know a landscape of terrible is the uh, it's the whole point right
0: I don't know I mean.
1: The apocalypse what's a better piece of tension than the end of the world how we react to that and so uh i mean i do have a fair share of uh, stories and movies and things where they go the other route and the whole point of it is to show the suffering and the 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 road is kind of one of those where it's just trying to get through it with an empty dream that never kind of goes anywhere and you're kind of leveraging it from another angle where it's like how how do we go the the other side of things where we is a point of grace that we can arrive to
2: yeah i think i used to enjoy those kind of stories the, like the ones that just sort of um like late kurt vonnegut oh, you know yeah, yeah. Where, yeah where his stuff was just unremittingly bleak and then it got bleaker and then it ended <laughs> you know uh i don't know um i i used to be more into that but i think as you know as i'm getting older i don't know if it's just a mortality thing but it's it it's it's not as fulfilling for me to read or to write
1: been preparing for this I was reading through the forums and this is the story was a, a while back when we published it several years um mm-hmm. and so I was reading the comments of, of people that were uh, responding to it and uh there was one comment from somebody who thought that Jimmy was an opportunist and was like this is a great idea uh, if you're in a post-apocalyptic setting to sell donuts and stuff and I was like what <laughs> and then there was somebody else a lot of people thought this was a really bleak story and I was like that's interesting too people in forums on the internet like I don't know is that's kind of like an apocalypse in itself right you get to become <laughs> anonymously uh, without repercussion what you are going to be are you an opportunist or are you a troll or are you a loving person an understanding person i don't know
2: i love that the apocalypse is like an endless youtube thread yeah
1: it tied. You, you said earlier yourself like we're already at the apocalypse like that gibson quote like yeah we are we are we're recording on it right now and i'm going to post it out to the apocalypse the post apocalypse <laughs> What other, uh, do you have any, you said your, um, your big thing is wanting to write more short stories and stuff. Uh, you clearly have a, struck a vein with, with me and with Drabblecast listeners, so if you do have anything, be sure to send it our way. But uh, is that kind of your main thing? Have you ever written in a longer form, like novels, or are you mostly wanting to do short stories?
2: I've tried writing novels. It's hard for me for some reason. Um, so mostly short stories. Yeah. I've never really attempted seriously any sort of longer form.
1: Cool. Well, you know, you don't really get to decide, right? It's that guy in the basement in your head that's going to really tell you what to do. <laughs>
2: it's that is sadly very true. Yeah.
1: <laughs> oh. Well, I uh, appreciate you spending some time with me. This has been a lot of fun.
2: Yeah, for me too. This is great. Awesome. Thanks, Thank Ramsey. You.